0: Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have the honor to engage in conversation with the fourth degree eligible BJJ Black Belt, Stephen Whittier. Stephen is one of the most decorated martial arts instructors in the country. He is one of only a handful of head coaches with Straight Blast Gym International under SPG founder Matt Thornton, as well as the organization's director. He is also the South Coast region's highest ranking instructor in both Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under New England senior ranked Black Belt, Roberto Maia, and Muay Thai kickboxing under Yong Dong USA director Mark Delagradi. In 2018, he became only the fourth trainer ever to earn the rank of Red Mongol in Yong Dong Muay Thai. In addition, he has earned black belts and instructor ranks in a number of martial arts disciplines over decades of study, and has trained a broad range of students and athletes from local, state, and federal law enforcement to multiple UFC competitors. Due to his parallel background as a former university lecturer, and consultant, Stephen brings a unique and deeply analytical perspective to his martial arts and business instruction. He also runs 40 Plus BJJ, which is dedicated to the unique tactical and technical needs of jiu-jitsu students and instructors 40 and up. Stephen truly is a renaissance man and a deep thinker. As I researched and spoke to the man, I quickly came to this conclusion both by seeing his vast body of work, experience, and products available as well as his systems thinking approach to almost everything. If you are a practitioner of BJJ or a BJJ business owner, I think you're going to gain a lot of inspiration and, more importantly, immediate value out of listening to Stephen's story and ever-evolving perspectives. It was both a joy and an honor to speak to Mr. Whittier, and I hope this is the first of many conversations we eventually have. And with that, I give you Stephen Whittier. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I am Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have a very special guest,
1: and you are... Stephen Whittier. Great Great to be here. Appreciate it.
0: So, Stephen, I'm calling you the Renaissance Man in doing all the research of your past and what's going on currently, which I'm very, very interested in. Can you give us sort of the origin story? I mean, obviously, you've done all of the martial arts in the world, it sounds like, uh, (laughs) you know, that everyone goes through from karate to Aikido to all kinds of stuff. And obviously, your mastery of BJJ with SBG, please speak for yourself here.
1: Yeah, I started, um, I'm coming up on 30 years of martial arts. Like you said, full gamut. I started off with what was available at the time, which was the Japanese traditional karate. And then, you know, I just kept sort of evolving and always trying to search for what would be the most effective. That's really just the pursuit. Because although I'm not a guy that goes out and gets into street fights or anything, I always was fascinated by functionality and like what's true when it comes to fighting. And like a lot of people, you have a series of... These moments in your journey, if you're being honest, where something will happen where you get your ass handed to you in one way, shape, or form. You know, and in my case, I remember one of the early ones was simply a professional boxer who then had turned into a professional kickboxer and became one of my coaches early on. And just experiencing that skill set versus the karate style you know, when I was in my first school, like I wound up being the fastest person to ever get promoted to black belt and that style and everything. But it was, it was really my first experience with what we call aliveness in SPG, which is just really all the components of functionality. And, uh, you know, he was just kind of messing me up with the jab and I couldn't reach him with kicks because he also understood kickboxing. I just realized, you know, fundamentally it's a different delivery system. So then I started to learn that and I was studying different philosophies of martial arts and got into sort of the proto valitudo proto-MMA, which was Jeet Kune Do, which had the right concept. But then you see that that kind of bifurcated into these two poles that in a lot of ways, I believe, kind of lost their way. You know, so people mm-hmm. that only followed what Bruce Lee as an individual who only had the exposure to certain things within his own lifetime, like during his lifetime, that's original JKD. And then you had the Jeet Kune do concept, which became ultimately sort of like, um, almost like a, a fancier reproduction of traditional martial arts because they stripped a lot of the functionality out of it and became sort of a collector's bag of jack of all trades, master of none. Some great things there, like I still have elements of JKD that I do, you know, I was starting to understand the limits in terms of how it was being passed on and taught. And then I experienced Jiu Jitsu and it was just completely humbling. I was uh, starting to do Muay Thai, got really into that. I'm realizing that a lot of the elements of Muay Thai were already superior to a lot of the stuff that was supposed to be, quote unquote, like the street lethal stuff. Because in practice, when somebody's actually resisting you, you realize, OK, well, what, what's actually working right now? So a lot of the things that people would do for drills and things like that, I was just starting to realize, you know, this literally could be thrown out. Without any sacrifice to, you know, the end result, like there's plenty to work on here in terms of developing functional skill sets, where some point you have to be willing to like just take a a look at things that maybe you're attached to for emotional reasons, or out of respect to somebody that taught it to you, or sense of tradition or whatever. And you'd have to just say, it's no longer necessary, right? It's really obsolete stop making hmm. arguments for things that need to be argued for. So I, I basically started to, like a lot of the people that went on to become part of this coaching organization, which is really what SBG was, came from like a JKD background, then experienced functional martial arts, and just basically started to realize like what what was really worth going deep on and what could basically be trimmed. In my journey, various forms of karate and kung fu and everything that I studied and uh, aikido you mentioned and uh instructor in jkd in muay thai and filipino martial arts and all of that and right. then well i you know i had multiple black belts and instructor certifications but really what i focus on is the pretty much what most people do nowadays but i just was doing it fairly early on which is the brazilian jiu-jitsu submission grappling wrestling boxing Muay Thai. And uh, so I'm a uh, close, like next month, I guess I'm eligible for fourth degree black belt from wow. Roberto Maya, my instructor. And then I'm um, one of the senior coaches with SBG. And then a couple of years ago, I it was very cool because it actually took me much longer than my jujitsu black belt. I hmm. became a uh, what's called Red Monk under Mark De La Grady of Siyatong Muay Thai lineage. Wow. And that was like 15 years of private lessons, plus obviously like training with all my own people and stuff like that and traveling and everything. So yeah, so that's, I guess my, in terms of my credential background, that's a sweep.
0: It sounds like a, almost a maniacal type of focus on the martial arts in general that you've been doing since, it sounds like your youth.
1: So, right now, I've lived for I guess about 16 years now in the southern, uh, south coast of Massachusetts. Like, I'm down mm. near Cape Cod. Okay. So, I would travel okay. within Mass, like, for instance, to train with Crew Mark all those years, that's an hour and usually 20 minute ride with some traffic and sometimes getting stuck in gridlock, you know, traffic coming out in and out of Boston, you know, so that was most weeks for the better part of 15 years going back and forth on that Mm -hmm. trip, like just cash out a half day of doing anything else just to make that trip and train with him. And a lot of cases he would bring me in to work specifically from like the grappling aspect of MMA with some of the UFC fighters that would come through, you know, so in addition to having some people that were from my own gym or some pro fighters that came in at various points to do camps with me as part of their training camps. A lot of people were going through Mark's gym at Tong in in Somerville, which is right outside of Boston. Like a who's who because I wanted to get some work with him because he's such an amazing technical striker and strategist for striking and a great pad man and everything. So I was always being like kind of brought in because of my understanding of jiu-jitsu for MMA purposes. And so we had like a great synergy there. And so I wanted doing that. But yeah, so traveling even within the state quite a while, but also, you know, I used to commute to get to boston brazilian jiu-jitsu when I was a student there before I opened up my own program And just traveling to seminars and training camps and everything for many many years. Yeah, it's a long road I actually didn't start as a kid I I did like briefly karate as a kid But my parents took me out because they wanted to put me to play team sports and it really wasn't much available I was up in new hampshire really didn't get serious until like as soon as I went to college and I had the opportunity to start like in right. earnest I just got it I now it was like on me I could do it right and uh, right. I just picked it. but that's really when I started was my first semester of college when I went hard
0: forgive me because I even consider college kids kids you know myself <laughs> right, right. <laughs> It's interesting because you talk about the trimming of certain parts of martial arts in terms of the evolution of yourself and when you came onto SBG. Since you went through that period of time, how did that work out? Because I know it was kind of heresy to sort of question certain things like in, in the early days of like karate and taekwondo or, or whatever. What did that transition look like to filtering out to getting to the truth?
1: It was a process that was a lot of steps because, you know, and again, I'm super conscientious of never wanting to step on toes and Mm -hmm. everybody that came into my life as an instructor through my journey, you know, I respected that place. So, and the more that I had these revelations of where the evolution was going, as I always sought what was the truth. I would try and see at various stages if I could kind of lobby, this happened a couple of times, if I could lobby my instructors to sort of embrace maybe what it is that was going on. And in some cases, you know, they just, the thought process may have been a bit different at the time. Mm-hmm they got it maybe later on. I always wanted to make sure that if I were making a move, like if all of a sudden I was going to go from like primarily doing striking arts and then I wanted to start branching out into really in earnest learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is what happened. Like as soon as I got a taste of it, I went from, oh, I'm going to do a little jiu-jitsu to sort of bring up my ground game. As soon as I had a few classes, I was like, I've got to learn this. I mean, this is whole of the universe and having the experience like everybody will relate to it's just the difference was back then it was like there was like one or two brown belts around and everybody Mm -hmm. else was one black belt two brown belts everybody else is a lower belt and there just wasn't much of it right so when you walk in and you're the number one number two instructor at the other place down the road walk in and everybody's like oh you know coach and stuff and then you go to Jitsu school as a brand new white belt and you have somebody that's just laying back there like this on wow. the back, playing with their feet, mm-hmm. and you can't do anything. You can't pass their guard. They're submitting you without using their hands and stuff. You know, if you put some time in, right, for some years, you can do that too. But in the beginning, I was just like, this is amazing because he's not even trying. And it just it is what it is, right? On the striking side, maybe a little advantage. But if this were a fight right now and this person got their hands on me and dragged me to the ground, like there's nothing I could do. So mm-hmm. what do you do? You either make these rationalizations or you say, if the truth of fighting effectiveness is important to me, then I'm going to humble myself, go back to white belt. I'm going to start to learn this step by step and take my lumps and all that stuff. And glad I did. It's amazing. I love jujitsu. And yeah, it just became my journey stacking things. But I always made sure that whoever I was training to answer your question at the time that I was always really clear on my motivations, even when I was invited, you know, to come on board SBG, because I really resonated with things that Matt Thornton at the time was saying publicly. And then I got like back in VHS days, right? I was like liking some stuff I was hearing from, him in interviews and things like that. It was very much communicating his own feelings, right? Mm -hmm. Except he Mm -hmm. didn't have an instructor he was training under, so he wasn't having to be politically correct. He was just out there saying this stuff super bluntly. This is how a lot of the core coaches came upon him, and we Mm -hmm. all kind of gravitated together. John Cavanaugh, Carl Tanswell, the Singer Brothers, all that stuff. It was all within two, three years of each other that we all kind of found Matt because he was this mouthpiece and very articulate, intelligent and everything, but he was Mm -hmm. just out there saying all the stuff that we were all individually experiencing and thinking and it was confirmation so then we all kind of gravitated together and that's what really set the groundwork for sbg going from matt's solo location gym in portland oregon to an organization right and uh, it was a shared philosophy shared values
0: how did you stumble um, but, into the uh, SPG organization? Well, what did that look like day one? Was that something in Massachusetts?
1: No, so basically, I started my initial program as just a glorified club. We were operating out of a Taekwondo school that let us have some space. I initially called that Nexus Martial Arts, and I kept that name because I was thinking like the nexus of everything kind of coming together. Mm -hmm. And so I kept that name when I first opened my full-time gym, my academy as well, and then we adopted the SBG name later on. But it started off as a club outside of Boston because I was still living up there at the time, and I was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu purple belt, Muay Thai instructor, JKD instructor, self-defense instructor, all that stuff. And like, it was still early days of MMA. Like, I don't even know if MMA was being commonly used yet. I think it was still called, uh, yes. I actually remember doing an ad, which was stupid because I was advertising, like we do Valley Tudo. Nobody knows what the fuck Valley (laughs) Tudo is. Pretty useless advertising. But in any case, I started that and started to get, you know, some traction because people really liked my approach and how I was teaching and the details and everything like that. So, you know, I know some people were like, were coming to my place, even when they could go to like one of the handful of black belts or something around, like they were liking our vibe and how we were, had everything under one roof. And at the time, I think there's only a few places that had everything under one roof in terms of striking, grappling, self-defense, court applications, uh, MMA, everything. And Mm -hmm. out of those handful, at most, I'd say I might have been the only one that really had it as a um, course of study that anybody could do, not just guys that were looking to go you know, in those early amateur MMA shows around. My goal from the very beginning was to make it accessible to everybody and scalable to all different levels, right? So first thing I did because of seeing Matt's stuff, resonating with it, emailing back and forth with him is the moment that I started off my own satellite program, which I made sure wasn't anywhere near my instructors and they were cool with it and everything, right? Because that's one of the lowest of the lowest to go (laughs) cannibalize your fucking instructors, students, which (laughs) far too often. Right. So, and I got, you know, their blessing sign off and everything. So I'm doing my own thing and still going to train, you know, with uh, Roberto and everything multiple times per week. But I got mad and I just um, wanted to have him come in for a seminar. So I hosted him. I got a bunch of my training partners and my early little group of students together. We were able to cover the cost for the seminar, at least close Mm -hmm. to it, brought him in and trained with him. Uh, It's at that point that my friend, John Frankel, who was a senior student to me, John was already a black belt at that time. So I introduced him to Matt as well. They all hit it off. John wound up coming on board SBG as well, even though he's also black belt under Roberto. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we just, we all hit it off. And then philosophically, again, resonated. And so Matt said, would you be interested in joining the program or joining the organization as a coach? You know, I really think you've got the right mentality and you have coaching and training knowledge and all the different areas that's what we, that we look for because we're not, you know, one dimensional. Mm-hmm. And so I went and talked to Roberto and Roberto's like, that's eh, cool, man. I mean, I'm still your instructor in jujitsu. And I'm like, absolutely. You know, I'm not, not switching affiliations. It's just that this organization is about coaching really. It's about functionality in all different areas of martial arts, you know, so we we're all, we we're all Fonzie there and all good with everything. And I went to my first SBG." camp, which was epic back then, like wild days. And I went to my first wow. SBC camp like a couple months later. It was pretty cool.
0: What a great congregation of minds. And that's so great of your instructor to just be so open to allow you to, to do that or to give you the blessing,
1: so, right, to, so to Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a lovely guy. Roberto is awesome. I wish I got to see him more often because we're busy and we live quite a ways away from each other now. You know, I'll still check in with him during the year and everything. Hope to see him soon. But yeah, he's, he's always been so mellow about that stuff. It doesn't take a lot just as an aside (laughs) to just honor and acknowledge, you know, the people that you train with and, you know, make sure that it's understood, right? Like I started with you, I'm going to finish with you. Like I'm, I'm with you, you know, like I've got every single belt ever from Roberto. And although I've learned a lot in my own journeys and my journeys outside that, I mean, there's just no question, right. That he's been my, my lead ranking instructor all this Mm -hmm. time. And that will make, change.
0: Have um, you seen those different type of faces where some people are more, hmm, I want to say insular, so to speak, versus someone like Roberto, who is sort of like prompted you up in that type of way? It's just a different philosophy. Have you seen the different types?
1: Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it takes extremes where people are... Um I see a lot of extremes, like most things people tend toward, it's kind of like a different tangent we could get on, but most people tend towards right. um, one end or the other of a pendulum swing with things. So like one of the classic examples is you hear nowadays, people talking about training with different people and should you or shouldn't you. And it's often represented as this one end or the other of the spectrum in mm. absolute terms. So on one side you like people will be like you're the crayons, you're the trader if you mm-hmm. go outside these doors and you show me my secrets that's very it doesn't exist much nowadays, but there's still some of that where it's like you know you can get basically excommunicated from an academy or an organization for teaching their secrets or something like outside mm-hmm. and then and on the other end of the spectrum or even just training with somebody else and on the other end of wow. the spectrum the people are like, hey, you don't control me. Like I pay you, you know, I do whatever the fuck I want type of thing. And to me, it's like a false dichotomy to some extent where it's like, of course, your instructor, your coach doesn't own you. What this requires is a little bit of common sense, number one, and number two, just putting yourself in the context of the fact that your community should be number one. If you just think of it from that perspective, if you realize truly, not just academically, that like the more that I embrace bring up the community that I'm part Mm -hmm. of, the more it will ultimately come back to me, then it answers a lot of these questions, right? So personally, I just never understood this whole thing. It it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that like, if you've got a competitor down the road, that's like threatened by your academy and talk shit and stuff like that, which you see a lot of that, and then you as a student goes and trains over there just because, you know, maybe you know somebody that goes there too. And so you just go over there and you tell your instructor from your own home academy, like three miles away or five miles away or something like, you don't fucking know me. It's like, well, dude, now you're actually, you know, again, it's just sort of in bad taste, right? you like, you're more thinking about you just going and getting a role with somebody, but knowing that when you go over there, you're probably going to start hearing them in some indirect way, start to malign your your community that you're actually part of, that you call home, and then maybe trying to poach you and pull you over and stuff. And I just see that shit all the time. Like, if you're going to go train somewhere else, cross train or something, you should be able mm-hmm. to do that. You should be able to travel and train. If you have affiliates, you should train with them. Why are you being so focused on just me, 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 that you're mm-hmm. going to go where there's actually maybe some some shit going on? right? Mm-hmm. If, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. And so it's just, it's sort of common sense. It's like I've branched out over the years a lot, but I've never done anything that would step on the toes of my home, my few core academies where I've really spent time. Like I don't step on toes of Boston BJJ. I don't step on toes of Sit Young Tom. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's mm-hmm. just, why would I do that? And I have plenty of opportunities to grow and travel and things like that. I hope that makes sense, but it's just common sense it to takes- some extent. I think if people focus more on if you go out and you learn something and you truly your objective is to learn and bring it back into your home community, then that's Mm -hmm. great. But if your whole thing is just like constantly being motivated by the grass is always greener and I'll do what I want and you're more self-motivated, then I believe the priorities get backwards and people just use this whole don't control me as kind of a rhetoric so that they can just kind of get whatever they want keeping your your learning in good taste, I guess, and being considerate of where you came from.
0: I see this pattern with all of you really high level guys and yourself in particular as well. You have this curiosity to learn. It seems like a lot of stuff in this this insatiable sort of curiosity. And it sort of falls in line, I always say, with the theme of Forever White Belt, which is from the perspective of a beginner's mind always. Have you had this trade ever since you were a kid? What, What did that look like?
1: I did, even though, honestly, you know, it took a while for me to really come around and action it. Because, um, you know, I just wasn't, I was a only child and kind of in my own head and everything. And in the beginning, I was like pretty chubby as a kid. Didn't really come out of my shell and become athletic until I was an early teenager even then as I started to get good at some sports I didn't have a ton of confidence so I was like one of the perfect examples of somebody that would like completely dominate in practice and then when I got into a game I get into my own head and all that mm. stuff so martial arts when I finally got into it and got really not that I had like really focused a lot on competition you know I did mm-hmm. some competitions and everything but over the years it really shifted me as a human in terms of confidence and just just kind of believing in myself and being able able to be assertive and just go and do things so i did have the curiosity i've always had like a strong intellectual curiosity this whole if i could go back i would have actioned it much Mm. earlier but you Mm -hmm. can't go back right so your path is your path and it couldn't have been any other way but for sure like once i started to get a little momentum on things then Mm -hmm. i was just hungry for development and finding the truth in all the different aspects of martial arts right and uh, if i had time and wherewithal you know I'd, i'd love to get into all the other aspects like i have some friends that are like really into um, spending a significant amount of time and energy on like handgun training and close quarters combat and stuff. And
0: oh, wow.
1: I've only done a small amount of that. Yeah. And it's not that I have any desire to get into a gunfight, <laughs> but it's just as you get into this field and you're interested in the truth, you understand how that can sort of expand like a series of concentric circles going out, like Ripple effect you Mm -hmm. then want to kind of understand all the different levels of applications Mm -hmm. so about as far as I've gone personally is on the defensive side with um, handgun retention and edge weapons for law enforcement and Mm -hmm. things like that. so I've done a fair bit of that over the years Mm -hmm. but I haven't really trained on the offensive side of that more than just um, basic level
0: Jumping back to your youth youth again, forgive me, because I'm particularly interested in this. Were you the kid to like set up a lemonade stand, you know, that kind of thing? Or when you said you lived in largely in your head, were you the drawing type? And what, what did that look like?
1: I was a big reader early on. I was reading shit that I probably shouldn't have even been reading at my age, <laughs> devouring books and novels and. So you were the reading. nerd. Yeah, I was. Yeah, for sure. So anything I could kind of get my hands on, and I was into uh, I was into like fantasy stuff and Conan and superheroes and everything. So yeah, I was that kid. I Didn't do a lot of video games, and I didn't play D and D. Actually, Matt Thornton kind of introduced me to D and D, like in my mm-hmm. late forties, and I, I, I love played it. a couple. No, yeah. oh, it's cool. It's yeah. cool. I kind of laugh at the time I was. Like, oh, that's really like some of the kind of weird off the beat kids play that or something. I just didn't I didn't know anything really about it. But yeah, now I think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I wasn't entrepreneurial either back. I kind of developed my entrepreneurial side out of necessity. Mm. And then later on, what what allowed me to kind of get into that and creating an online business and then doing mm. some consulting and things I do mm. now? That really came as an outgrowth of me transferring my intellectual curiosity that I had when I as a teacher because I also was teaching at Tufts University for a while and was almost going to do that full time as a career, become a professor. I was in mm-hmm. a PhD program. Then I ultimately chose to put that on hold, opened up my business. And then I really wanted to apply my same mindset for academic learning and martial arts to mm-hmm. business. And so then, you know, that kind of snowballs as you just try and get uh, better at what you do. And, and again, through a, a series of revelations, as you like kind of try certain things, look at the status quo and then, Realize, you know, maybe I got to strip this back and look at if there's something that doesn't kind of, if I have a bottleneck of some sort, you know, what can I do? Kind of coming back to first principles to reassess and have something that feels more congruent with who I am and what my, my core values are and everything, like how to run mm-hmm. this and everything is very similar. That's why I talk now a lot about my latest kind of obsession is talking about like systems thinking because. Mm-hmm actually sounds commonsensical, but really, really hard to do. Like Mm -hmm. literally almost nobody does it. And what's really interesting as well is that even if you do it in one area, you might assume that therefore you're just sort of like naturally tend towards systems thinking in all areas, but you realize that um, you can be a specialist in one area and have kind of a systems paradigm that you operate within. But as soon as you go into another area, you completely don't even realize that you're not even thinking of, you're not even bringing that paradigm in any way, shape, or form into another area of life. Hmm. So I- is really interesting, but since I really focus all my time in just a few areas of life, <laughs> I'm trying to always apply systems thinking and first principles to those areas is to the best of my ability, and that's a constant lifelong process.
0: What is systems thinking?
1: Actually, I'll give you a great thing to do. Uh, if you go real quick onto YouTube and um, type in Elon Musk first principles, and he talks very briefly, and it's like a three-minute video, I've shared this around in my jiu-jitsu group online and everything, but you know, he basically talks about first principles thinking versus reasoning by analogy, which is a very broad term for a lot of that kind of encompasses a lot of like logical fallacies but it's the difference between the difference in one shape between thinking in terms of the core principles if you strip away all the component pieces and you look at the whole the entire ecosystem and how all the different parts interrelate to one another and work synergistically it's sort of like taking the macro view where you really have as close to an objective perspective as possible and then you can also zero in on the. Component pieces. And most people tend to think in terms of the component pieces first and foremost. And then when it comes to systems, they don't think in terms so much of the macro level from a first principles perspective. They tend to think in terms of um, reasoning by analogy, which is when something resembles other things that they've learned or known, or it sounds like something. You know, it's like sound bites, and people pretty much are always kind of talking about, oh, this is like XYZ. You know, they analogize it to something else. And you see this all the time. It's what's fascinating. I'm obsessed with the jujitsu philosophy of Hickson and had a great opportunity to, uh, you know, become friendly and train a lot with Henry Akins, who's, you know, I think probably Hickson's best black belt and certainly the one that spent the most time with him absorbing everything. And Henry's become a really good friend. He's a great human. I also introduce him to everybody else in SPG. And ultimately he wound up coming on board SPG, which is really cool Mm -hmm. some years later. But, you know, I've talked to him at at length about this. And there's some conversations we haven't had yet because I haven't seen him for in person for a little over a year now. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I just think that one thing he talks a lot about with Hickson, just to bring this into the jujitsu context, is Hickson would solve these problems. Everybody talks about like, oh, Hickson just does the basics and everything. And I want to get deeper than that, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what I'm fascinated with is Talk about Hickson would solve these problems when he would famously roll with all these super high-level guys of the era. And they were essentially all training to be world champions. A lot of them were current world champions, sometimes multi multiple world champions, all training in like pressure cooker environments with other people that were aspiring to be the same. And almost like a professional sports team that you see when you get those teams where everybody's like training for competition at high levels. And here's Hickson just teaching his own students in his own academy at like, you know, 42 or whatever. And there's all these verified tale after tale by the people themselves coming out and saying like, I don't know how the fuck is possible, but I'm really good and he just totally crushed me. And I've never felt anything like that. One of the things is you hear over and over again is people describing all these like high, high level black belts describing what it felt like. Listen to that for a second. Instead of just going like, oh, blah, blah, blah. He's overblown and everything. Because you start to see the common theme, right? And one of the things Henry said that I think is so easy because I'm using by analogy, because it might sound like something you've heard elsewhere or whatever, is made me just stop in my tracks. And he he said over and over, Hickson would figure out how to shut down games that he'd never even seen before, let alone put himself up against until right then and there against a guy who was already like, really high level and developed this game. And he solved these problems movement by movement, not technique by technique. And so when you start to understand what that looks like from a systems perspective and you understand like what in practical terms, not this sort of mystical quality of like connection that Hickson talked about with his technique, which is like his true innovation, I believe, is how he could take all the fundamental techniques and positions and add this layer of connection with these certain details And basically produce a completely different result than everybody else, even when they were really good at them. And um, then people would describe like what it was like that, you know, you might give him a little bit of a hiccup here because he didn't know Spider Guard or something. He'd never seen it before. And Mm -hmm. part of that evolution. But then he gets like the best guy in the world at Spider Guard. And within a very short period of time, he just completely shuts it down. And then Spider Guard doesn't work on him anymore. You know, And, and it's like you think about what would allow you to be able to do that. And if it's not athleticism, if it's not speed and being super strong and all that stuff, right? And his connection. So, you know, that to me is true first principles application. And I think he was a legend in that regard because he was able to do that on a level that most can't do because most people in jiu-jitsu if you look at the competition scene most of the time what you see is these shifts from there's this one particular game that's often formed around you know a small body of techniques that then kind of grows into a game so i talk about like in systems theory we have like the branches creates a node right and the node is Mm -hmm. this new game kind of evolves and you get a lot of people playing it because it is specifically developed to address a problem that's coming up based on a prior adaptation. Does that make sense? So
0: people can, yeah, so people could visualize a mind map, if you will, if they're familiar yes, with exactly. that type of thing. Mm. Think of a mind
1: map, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of people are doing this now, it's shutting down XYZ, right? So this new game develops as the answer to that. And then what happens, a certain period of time goes by. And then you start to see new branches come out as people start to address, kind of create a new strategic tactical slash technical answer to the other thing. And so you see this like endless extrapolation of different games and these sort of, I'm not going to call them fads. I think that's disrespectful, but these waves of how Mm -hmm. things go and they're always taking place within a certain environment too, which is part Mm -hmm. of system theory, right? So you've Mm -hmm. got the inputs going in, you've got the process, you've got the outputs, And then through testing in live competitive environments, right, Mm -hmm. they start to create new inputs and test them and put it in a process, right? And it's all taking place within the overarching environment of whatever the rule set is. And so you see all these developments. What I think is fascinating, though, is when you talk about first principles, like true, not like, you know, every jujitsu guy says, this is my passing system. This is my XYZ guard system, right? I'm not talking about that level. That's a component system. I'm talking about picture systems. And you look at first principles. This is why I think Hickson, and I don't know the man personally, I'm just a massive fan of his contribution to jiu-jitsu and what he Mm -hmm. was able to figure out. Most people don't think of Hickson as an innovator. They just think of him as like this big legendary name. I think he was the greatest innovator we've ever had in jiu-jitsu for the purpose that he was able to create and figure out what the ideal connection is to make every single core position that everybody universally must know to play the game radically better. And if you've never actually kind of experienced what those little nuances are, this is where people just like, ah, whatever, you know, I train with so-and-so who's awesome. And I'm like, just try it out. Things you think you know really well, you may not know really well. And the more you're exposed to it, the more you start to think Hopefully, if you're not a component-focused person, the more you can extrapolate into other areas how the same principle over here is going to manifest over here. You start to think in these terms, may not be able to perform at Hickson's level, but you start to think like him and you start to be able to solve problems in a different way based on principles. So a lot of times it's not, I guess, bringing it back to the, the mind map. A lot of times, what you find is that the answer that you're looking for isn't where you thought it was. In other words, Mm -hmm. I don't need to come up with a different game to necessarily uh, solve this problem that I'm encountering that somebody's giving me. What I need to do is go back to the first principles of maybe my posture and my weight distribution and my angle and look at how I'm creating pressure and things like that with my body. And I might be able and often can solve those problems on that level without needing. To have a technique for technique answer, mm-hmm. and this is where it comes back again. Why does Henry say all the time? It's this way of it's his way of articulating it. But he's like it's movement for movement, not technique for technique. He would feel what you're doing even if he'd never seen it before, and he would shut down the best guys doing this new thing or whatever was new at the time. And uh, so I, I just think that's fascinating. So it's not that like I don't still encounter problems all the time where it's like somebody's really good. And then they're, they're got this great entry inverting into a leg lock entanglement or something. And, and it's like, Oh, you know, never experienced that before. And, you know, you got me twice with it or three times with it or something. I mean, of course, but the point is, it's not that I'm a purist per se, where I'm not interested in learning new things. Cause I do all the time, but what I'm interested primarily, especially in jujitsu terms as well, but a lot of the people I talk to for my online stuff is like 40 plus. And I want to scale For longevity, Mm -hmm. meaning even if you're in your 20s right now and you're very athletic, are you putting equity into your game development, your skill development, such that what you're doing right now, you'll be able to improve and refine when you lose the current level of athleticism you have. This is why I often come down on older grapplers that talk about old man strength and I, you know, smash the young guys and work on your grips and all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, cool. So, you know, you're 48 and you're super strong and everything, and that's what you're relying on. And you Mm -hmm. pride yourself on going home and taking Advil every day. And it's like, so in another 20 years, you'll be off the mat, arthritic, reliving your glory days. Why don't you relax? And why don't you figure out how to use less of your muscle? Stop worrying so much about keeping up and worry about how to even the odds on a technical level. Because let's face it, jujitsu wouldn't even exist If it weren't for this problem of how to deal with a bigger, stronger, more explosive person. So why would you try and solve problems on the level of physicality when you could apply first principles and always try and solve those problems on a technical level? In which case, I mean, first principles like by connection and angle and positioning and all that stuff. And just trying to to have certain smaller things with minimal reliance on physical attributes solve as many problems as possible. And every time you encounter a new problem, you see Without having to reinvent the wheel, how can I use this to solve that new problem as well? And it may take you some time. You may be, you know, you have to go back to humility again because. You get this person, this person that are giving you some real problems, but you're just patient with yourself and you trust jujitsu and you put it in the computer and you say, I'd rather lose short term by getting swept a lot or submitted a lot or something until I can figure out through first principles how to um, do this without having to use a ton of energy as an answer. You know, it's
0: the hammer and the nail type of analogy too. And it's so easy just to use that hammer every time, you know, when you got it for everything, when it's been working for you for so long. In my case, it used to be flexibility. You know, I used to be really Mm -hmm. flexible and I could get away with a lot of stuff doing that. But now that I'm 50, obviously not so much anymore. I got to change things up. For the older players out there, too, there's quite a few listen to this show. Do you have any sort of nagging injuries and things like that? And how do you keep up with your particular health and those things? It seems like everyone's got a neck thing, a lower back thing, a knee thing, right? Or fingers, if you play that, you know, that type of game. Oh, man,
1: I'm dealing with it right now. Actually, pretty recent. This is my jujitsu bitch session right now. Like, yeah, oh, my, here we go. My <laughs> Everyone loves this. For, <laughs> for six months, right? We all talk about our, oh, yeah, well, I've got the. But honestly, the, the real bad one for me for years was my, um, my neck. And upper mm. back and uh, so i've had a couple a couple neck injuries but the one that was really bad is um i had ninja huo like back when he was fighting professionally um shogun's brother a lot of the old school mma guys well came out to do a training camp with me from brazil and i think it was only like second or third day of the camp and i was rolling with him he's got 20 25 pounds on he's a big he's a big boy as i was trying to sweep and uh, my head post on the mat, he hmm. kind of kept to a little in position scramble to keep his balance. And I swear all the man's weight came down on my oh. neck and it no. made this horrifying noise I'll never forget. And I was literally in my mind thinking, are you all right? Like to myself, like. That's terrifying. We really hope I'm not paralyzed right now because yeah. I need it sounded like kindling breaking, right? Yeah. It was horrible. After that, I, you know, I had the typical thing you hear about, you know, I herniated discs, I had stenosis, shooting pains down I'm in my fingers and couldn't sleep. And I had multiple epidural injections. I denied having a neck surgery and all that stuff. I did not want that. And it really set me back for several years where I had multiple doctors kind of try and tell me like, hey, can't you just teach? Do you still have to actually like do this stuff? And I was like, you don't understand this is jiu-jitsu. Like, I can't, I'm going to lose my shit if I can't. I just teach you know like yeah, I, I need to be able to play a little bit right. So I, I would do PT and everything. I go back in and like within 30 seconds of starting to roll with somebody even light they post on my head my neck would pop just from them posting on me let alone like doing a cross face or anything. And it was just miserable for years. Like I was starting to get really depressed about it. Actually what I did was I just took some real time off. Didn't try and rush it as soon as I felt a little bit better and I started to go back to doing things like um, kettlebell swings weighted carries, then graduating to deadlifts and things like that. Just not huge weightlifting regimen, but just things that were really building up the entire chain where my body kind of had to stabilize as a unit and good posture, packing my shoulders and everything. Hmm. And after a little bit of time of doing that, I felt like everything just sort of tightened up a little bit. And when I came back, So initially the PT I was doing, which is more like specific neck exercises and stretching and everything, that was good Mm -hmm. to like get everything to a certain point. But then for training, I had to really do some of those big compound movements and um, just use really good form and everything. And I felt like that allowed me to get back. So I still have these setbacks sometimes, but it's nowhere near what it used to be. You know, I'm able to, to train a lot more than I could for a long time. So I'm thankful for that.
0: So you're like a PT master and obviously a weightlifting aficionado. You must really know all about this type of health. Are you supplementing and, and doing cryo or sauna or how crazy love, are
1: you going? I would love someday to get one of those little um, little infrared saunas in my house or something. But yeah. um, no, I, I don't have any of that stuff accessible to me really. So I don't do mm. that. Pretty much I've got a converted my lower level because my girlfriend's a PT as well. So uh, during you know, covid Go from just having some weights down there to like converting it into a uh, into a workout area. So it's not that I spend a lot of time there, but I just try and stay ahead, try and keep up a little bit. My focus is on teaching and getting some training in myself so I can continue to test things and evolve. And because I just love it, not trying to be a bodybuilder or anything, but it just mm-hmm. helps me stay together. And then, yeah, I, I take some supplements. I, the vitamin D was huge for me. I was extremely D deficient. So I was like aching to every morning when I got up. And I found that's actually like one of the common side effects of D deficient. Efficiency, which most people have unless you are yeah. in one of really sunny states so that really helped me out you know i take like some joint supplements all that stuff yeah. and then one of the things my girlfriend has one of those um e-stem things which i never paid much attention to oh, but yeah. i have noticed that that really does help if i use that for a few days in a row on a sore spot that i just crank that baby up and you know,
0: it it's does like does a help. tens unit right it's like an electrical yeah. impulse yeah. thing
1: yeah, yeah. okay and actually it helped. And the other thing I do because I've had so much body work, so much um, like osteopathic physiotherapy and stuff over the years mm. when I was going through all these things, I have a pretty good kinesthetic awareness of where my issues are. So a lot of times like where I'm feeling my neck kicking up again, but I realize mm-hmm. that, um, from experience that this is actually pain referring, but it's going all the way down and mm. uh, I'm feeling a trigger down here from this. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the nerve is, but like into my, behind my scapular, you know, I'll take like the little ball or something and I'll be rolling yeah. on and get a mm-hmm. certain angle and I'm all of a sudden like, boom, it just releases mm. and that's from experience, from having other professionals who know what they're <laughs> doing, like mm-hmm. work on me. And then yeah. I try and reproduce it at home and I've gotten actually kind of good at that. But it's very individualized. I certainly wouldn't, I, I wouldn't step out of my lane and try and work on somebody else, right? It's just sure, sure. It's my own feel. <laughs> Have you
0: modified your game then to work with other people? You were giving us the example of the person who was 20, 25, 30 pounds heavier than you. Have you modified your game for that?
1: Tremendously. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I do things by and large much more efficiently now. And the other thing too, is you notice, like, so I'll give you a perfect example. You know, me as a blue belt was, I wasn't one of those gummy people that could just fold in half comfortably, but Mm -hmm. I definitely was like a climbing arm bar, climbing triangle guy. Now, I rarely will do that. Like, I just, I will let it go. I don't want to risk it. Too much wear and tear on the back, you know? So mm-hmm. I just let it go. And um, I play a lot more on bottom, really working more on defense in a lot of cases. It's kind of interesting because I had this conversation maybe two years ago with henry and he was actually saying he does the same thing and it's kind of part of his tactical philosophy too is, is like i play on bottom i get to my knees a lot and then get reversals. so it's like it's like equal to getting a sweep you get on top of people by actually not being controlled on bottom and then getting to your knees and then you start to get good at avoiding guillotines and front headlocks and all that stuff mm. and um, you know, start getting your reverse and everything. And I I find that that happens to me a lot. So there's a number of things I could cite like that. On top, I just focus on, so my guard, I focus on distance and connection more than I do particular, like I used to be big, like, you know, De and Lasso and all that stuff. And now I I don't really use grips very much anymore. Maybe like a collar or something, you know, and I focus more on distance, which is another Hickson concept is like, that's a number one for fighting to make it so people can't can't reach your head and knock you unconscious, but it turns Mm -hmm. out, if you kind of release your mental attachment to always needing to have these grips and everything, that the distance you can create between you and your partner, if you're able to have like really good sense of how to maintain connection with your legs, then your arms are kind of free to do whatever they want. Mm. And And so you can constantly deny them being able to get chest to chest contact. It's like a paradigm shift, but I put in pretty much, I remember about a year and a half of every single role, starting from my back, not even sitting up and just practicing that one thing over and over and over again against types of passing and starting to like really feel like it was clicking you know it's it's not really it's not a guard game it's just a concept again first principles is if the passer's goal is to get chest to chest and take all that space away from you your goal is to maintain it so they're always falling into your hips rather than chest to chest right and so Mm -hmm. you go back to really fundamental movements like a shrimp What's a shrimp? It's move your hips, then your shoulders to create distance. Hips away, shoulders away. Always in that order. And something as simple as that, which everybody's like rolls their eyes and says, yeah, I know. I've been doing jujitsu for, I mean, they know this after a month, right? You realize like just how versatile that one concept, if done at the right time, becomes in your game long term. So yeah, things like that have uh, simplified things for me and give me a lot of mileage.
0: So let's transition to the black belt, the newly minted black belt, the person who wants to. Hey, it's time! I want to. I want to start my own academy. What I find is a lot of them. They just don't realize how many different hats you guys seem to be wearing. You become a a leader and a teacher, a psychologist, a you know, accountant, an advertising marketing person, and all these different things. And nowadays, in online. You need to have some sort of solution there. I know that you've been providing and sort of developed into this sort of coach in a way, in a different kind of way, a business coach, if you will. And under these times of COVID, what are the concerns that these individuals, which what should they have and, and what sort of the high level sort of strategy and successes and failures that you've sort of illustrated could you uh, convey to them?
1: Are you talking for an academy or for an online business?
0: Both, really, because it seems like oftentimes there's, there's what I'm seeing now is some of them newly minted have these academies, right? And they're scrambling to get some sort of online solution, whether sure. it be Zoom classes or, or what have you. Right, uh, right. Or it could be an instructional type of product. Mm-hmm. So please.
1: Yeah, I mean, as far as an academy, you know, this, as far as COVID, man, it's, it's been, it's been rough. I mean there's just no way around it. But um if if you have a brick and mortar business that is predicated on people not just exercising or doing kata or things like that, but you know, actual like the essence of the art, Muay Thai wrestling, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, whatever is contact. It's been a challenge. There's no question. And, you know, I keep seeing people that, you know, I either know or know of that have lost their academies and it's fucking heartbreaking. I, I yeah. it's been for sure is challenging for us. I mean, we we're shut down for close to five months before mm-hmm. we even come back for the first stage. So yeah, it's tough. But as far as that conversation goes, you know, let's just say this too shall pass COVID will, you know, we will have a post COVID world. So for people coming on board outside of these particular exceptional circumstances. And when I started my academy, we're in the middle of the market crash, you know, from back in 2008. Like I opened and that happened right after that. So (laughs) I've been through a couple of these now. The main thing is that you can't just come into it and say... Hey man, like I'm just passionate as a martial artist and a teacher, so I'm just gonna build it and they'll come. Because mm-hmm. in most cases, don't get me wrong, it has to start with your passion. But in most cases, unless you have a very great situation in terms of maybe location or whatever, or maybe you kind of get hooked up so you have some particular like influencer of some sort, like or a connector that kind of like helps you know feed people to you or something. I've seen a few out situations where it seems like those have been the conditions, but broadly speaking, you know, people need to come in and be serious that if you want to have a good program that is robust enough for you to do this professionally and ultimately builds into something that will be sustainable, that will be able to help all the different levels of people coming up, you need to think beyond like getting your first like 10 people and everything. You need to think about like, what is it that you want to work with? Have build long-term and try and have that in mind, thinking of what the systems will look like mm. five, 10 years down the road and kind of work backwards from there. You need to take running a business seriously, or you're ultimately, I just noticed that a lot of jujitsu people think that business is like a bad word. And I was the same. And then what you realize is that it's not, what a, do you mean a, by that? Well, it's just, they have this um kind of monk mentality or something that if you talk about business it means that you're quote unquote like in it for the money or something Mm. and none of us do this because we think this is the path to get rich you know it's Mm -hmm. not why it happens so the thing is you ultimately shortchange what you can bring to your community long term if you come into it with that hey man i just want to teach jujitsu for a living it's like well no the same dedication and the same passion that you brought to learning the art and hopefully to teaching it, you also need to bring that with a degree of intellectual curiosity and dedication to really creating a sound, strong program, one that can sustain you so you can continue to do it and be able to pay your bills and all that stuff, but also will ultimately be structured in such a way so that as you grow, and then you have 100 or 200 or more students that you have built an infrastructure that is going to be able to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of us have experienced in one way, shape, or form its really tough is that you kind of come in and it's basically a glorified club. And then there's a certain vibe that is established and things are really loose in the beginning and unstructured. And then when you try and professionalize, as you start to get kind of scale and you get overwhelmed and you can't you're struggling to keep up and everything like that, then you start to feel like this resistance from every, everybody that was in when it was only like 20, 30 people because they, they don't want to change. They're kind of used to one thing. And so you go through these different stages In business growth. And the biggest thing I would say if I could have gone back myself is just really do think about what your academies, what it will look like if you get it to a certain level of scale and try and think about how to make that as efficient and effective as possible, just like you do in your jujitsu. Don't just wing it. You know, don't just think like, you know, it's all about me just showing up and teaching a great class which is super important, but the other stuff will just quote unquote, take care of itself. I'll just, you know, get a bookkeeper to take care of that stuff. And I'll just hire some third party to just handle my marketing. Cause I don't want to deal with that, man. I just want to train. I just want to teach classes. Like, no, in the beginning, you really need to understand all the different hats of your business. You need to be a professional and you need to take it seriously. Like you might need to step back a little bit from just being this sort of like bohemian jujitsu guy for a little bit to build a truly strong program. You know, that's just part of it. I think, (laughs) especially now that there's so much of it, the ability to just be half-assed with it is not really an option anymore because other people will come in and they will be serious about it. And they are, they really do want to build a strong environment that can become a problem if you are a little too bohemian that'll be my main thing especially on brick and mortar that goes for everything though right in terms of online there's so many different models main thing is you have to just think like who are you serving what value are you going to be able to bring you know don't second guess yourself if it's something that you want to do like going online you know there's plenty of outlets now so i've had my own program 40 plus bjj i started Mm -hmm. off like only knowing a little bit of real basics back then, 2011, I started. So it's been close to 10 years now, you know, really just started off as me creating an email list and people starting to say like, Hey, I, I like what you're talking about. This is kind of sounds different to me, different perspective. People start applying what I was talking about in their training. And the thing is, a lot of people have this bias towards I want to learn from XYZ influencer. In other words, somebody who's won IBJJF Worlds or is an Mm -hmm. ADC person. And in some cases, hey, no problem with that, right? Clearly they have something to learn. But the other thing that you find a lot, and this is very big for me, and I had to have the confidence to kind of just throw myself out there, that somebody could be really, really high level. But if they're teaching their game to you, which is what a lot of people do, it's like a lot of times you're trying to fit you know, that square peg into a round hole. And again, this is why before I used this particular terminology, it was already first principles. This is mm-hmm. why it resonated with some people and others didn't get it because it's a little bit of a pattern interrupt when everybody's thinking reasoning by analogy, like, oh, look at how cool that person's game is, right? They played this guard. I want to be able to do that too. So I want to learn, you know, XYZ guard, XYZ passing system, XYZ submission system. And it's like, yeah. And if you actually look at it, it's based a lot on their particular set of attributes. And now essentially like, if you see that they happen to teach that game to all their students, XYZ instructor may be extremely proficient at that game. And they may have a few students who maybe have similar attributes and thought process and um, super athletic that might pick it up and play it very well as well. But there's going to be a lot of people that simply will, it will never click from. Them. And this is what I started to hear on my email list. Cause that was like where my first communications were when I would be like conversing back and forth with people who came into my ecosystem online. And they would say like, Oh, my instructor's gnarly, man. Like I have the highest respect for him, but I just can't do any of the stuff he's teaching. And when you talk about things, you're kind of talking about how it works. And then I do what you're saying, and it's like, it works. Now, it's not saying that I'm better than that particular instructor, but my approach is more first principles. So a lot of times, the things are much more accessible to people, and they can sort of pour themselves, assimilate their own DNA into the core fundamental principles that I'm laying out. And and obviously, even beyond me individually, you see this as kind of a theme with the, uh, the SVG thought process in general. It's not stylistic, it's universalized. And then you get people that have all different ways to express the art through their particular set of attributes and how they think and everything like that. And it becomes very diverse. It's like the true expression of JKD, but in a much more alive and functional manner, if that makes sense. So that's what I was doing. And so it's like, whatever it is that you're going to do, coming back to the original question on, is just figure out what makes sense? Like, where's their need? You know, like I was, I was specifically targeting people because I knew the challenges of somebody that was at the time I was almost 40. So I'm coming up on that milestone and feeling the pain of like the neck and the back and having had knee surgeries and having had subluxed shoulders and having had the pop ribs and all -hmm. the things, especially from going hard when I was first starting out and then having a lot of other older students, some cases older than me that I'd worked with and just, you know, kind of summed it up. I was like, man, I've had hundreds of students over the years. And then you start hearing from people all over the world. Once you go online and you just listen to, you know, what they're saying, listen to your market. And um, Mm -hmm. I really started to be picking up more and more on what the conversations there that were relevant and Mm -hmm. seeing how can I match what I'm good at to their needs? And that really was the start of it. You know, then later on, you know, Mm -hmm. we have other opportunities. So I have my own, you know, my own website, my own group, I'm really good friends with, well, now I, I know both of them, but but one of the co-founders, like a BJJ Fanatics, a good friend of mine from way back before they started Fanatics and everything. And so, wow. you know, they've been really good and carry my programs and everything there too. I actually filmed one with them as opposed to them just like carrying my my own courses and stuff like that. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. there, there's a lot more opportunities now for people than there used to be. It's all about how are you going to show up and how are you going to serve really is mm-hmm. what you need to figure out.
0: Yeah, Stephen has a compendium of material that you guys can purchase out there. It's, it's quite prolific. You have a lot of stuff over the um, the decades and products and great products, I should say, that people could should pick up as well as your, your coaching services as well. One of the questions I like to ask is, uh, and it's kind of a silly question, but it always brings up a, an interesting sort of memories. is um, how did you learn to tie your white belt?
1: Wow, um, I tied it wrong. I know that. That was for sure. I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't do that. I did not know. I'll tell you what, like, you know, the the knot that you do where you like go through the belt and everything and, um, so it doesn't come untied. Yeah. I learned that. I, I finally learned how to do that like two years ago. <laughs> I was like, I was a third degree black belt. Cause I was always like, eh, it looks complicated, whatever. So I yeah. just prepared the fact that my belt will come untied within about 20 seconds. Um, <laughs> But even now that I have figured out how to tie it so that it stays, um, it stays tied, it still winds up around backwards and my whole geese flopped open anyway. So I don't even know what the point is. I just.
0: <laughs> and then, so was there was there any anxiety like day one when you're like, oh, God, I got to deal with this
1: belt? Yeah. So that was my first thing is like, well, you know what, though? I guess I can't say that I had anxiety about the white belt day one of jujitsu because I've been in martial arts. Yeah, that's so, what I was thinking, yeah. I'm actually trying to think back and remember my first day of karate. Right. It was, like, very rigid in terms of the, um, you know. Like that's right. The body, like, very rigid in terms of everything, and you're, like, mm-hmm. a lion and all that stuff. So Yeah, yeah. I think I recall being very self-conscious about it in that class. But by the time I got to jiu-jitsu, I'd tied so many belts, you know, mm-hmm. like pretty much second nature. What was more stressful is, like, not having any idea what I was doing because back then it was like, just roll a hundred percent on your very first day of jujitsu, which I don't agree with, but it was, it was like, that's just, mm-hmm. it was bad west. You know, I just remember the gassed out fingers cramped up forearms mm-hmm. and having somebody do like a fake the choke, go for an arm bar, you know, the, the old classic um, yeah. combo and like, just having it dawn on me like what was happening because i didn't really speak the language of grappling i just knew a few moves and stuff and so i was Hmm. like oh man like he's he's going to get me in an armbar next thing i realize like no he's already got it and i'm starting to feel that like clicking <laughs> you know <and> my <laughs> elbows hurting and stuff and then and i remember like holding on to somebody's neck as hard as i could and you know didn't know how to apply pressure on the artery so i was like doing the like big whole <laughs> thing with two arms trying to mm-hmm. pull my elbows apart and yeah stretch arm strong oh, yeah stretch arm strong on their on their lapel just garbage you know but <laughs> but that that was the stressful thing is just You know, as we all talk about, like the the white belt experience is just Mm. feeling like you're in a fight for your life and you just, you know, it's like, there's no reason for that. But um, Mm. at the time, you know, it seems like, oh my God, this person's going to kill me. Mm So I've got to, you know, fight with everything I have. It's great though, because having had that experience, it allows me to um, preempt a lot of that and pre students of like what they should be looking for Mm. and give them some biofeedback tools for mm-hmm. when they transition from our kind of our intro classes where where they can't roll yet they're just trying to develop like good habits and understanding of what all the positions are and everything have some tools mm-hmm. to work with and we start to graduate them into positional training with adaptive resistance <clears throat> and then ultimately into rolling how they can leapfrog a lot of that process and at least have kind of self-diagnostic tools to realize when they're stepping into that like fight or flight mode how to catch it, and pull themselves back. And of Hmm. course, the instructor still needs to be there to facilitate that. I think, again, the risk of injuries and the risk of going home and feeling like, oh, I'm not cut out for this and coming up with some rationale that you'll tell everybody about why Mm -hmm. you're too busy with work and stuff. Like We've just really been able to get rid of a lot of that.
0: That's so fascinating because as I see, there are so many different academies that don't have like an intake a first day intake. What does it look like when I walk in day one into your academy?
1: We've tried different things and I'm not rigid about this because I think if done properly, multiple methods can work. But what we've been doing for quite some time is the model of a private intro. So basically everybody gets a a short, like not a full hour usually, but it goes more like half hour or something private lesson that follows a consult and an orientation. Because again, when you first come in, this is a whole new world. You have all these preconceived notions. We forget this, but when you come in, like your mind is kind of racing about what's this going to be like. And you know, there's even people who are like macho guys or something come in and they still don't know what to expect and they may not admit it, but they're like, there's some fear and anxiety there often on Mm -hmm. some level. We just want to like, Have it be a pleasant experience, like very, you know, mellow, like, you know, you're welcome here, you're wanted here, friendly easy going and then you know we we kind of take them through a tour of the facility and we talk about our history and our evolution and the things that make us unique then we kind of bring them bring them in and really have a sit down we have a, a really good conversation to get down to why they're there it's not just kind of a surface level like in other words i'm not interested in features right i want to learn mm. kickboxing right i want to learn jujitsu. jitsu i want to learn mma i'm not interested in that i'm interested in you know tell me about yourself so that we can um really get a feel for like what brought you here. And a lot of times that goes back to childhood or something, you know, like you you really get to hopefully get to know somebody for a little bit so that we can Mm -hmm. really speak to them on that level. Mm -hmm. And then, and then we do the private lesson. And I just feel it's like, everybody talks like about building rapport as though it's some sort of um, sales gimmick or something. And it's not, it's like, it should be because you really want to, you really want to know what's going on because even though you're inputting them into a class with everybody else, that's learning say in the intro program or something like that, right? Everybody has a different reason that brought them in It's really important to be able to understand that so that we Mm. can speak to that relative to what it is that we do. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. And then by the time people get into the class to move forward, they've already experienced the private lesson um, where we give them an overview and we kind of talk about the philosophy. We give them some examples of the types of things we're going to learn and not just throw a few random techniques, but like actually use those to illustrate the philosophy of those arts. And if they already have a little bit of experience or something, we'll tailor it to that. And then we bring them in, right, then it's like we make sure every single time somebody's new, right, we introduce them to everybody in the class. They don't just go in and look at around like everybody's introduced, names, names, we keep the vibe, and we try and contextualize everything that we're teaching. Mm -hmm. So like you said, people come in, it's like, do you know that they understand what tapping means, right? A lot more people know now because Uh. of the UFC and everything, Mm. but you can't assume somebody knows what tapping is. You can't assume somebody knows what rolling is. I mean, I remember – I've been doing martial arts for 12 years or something before I actually, I, I heard people start to revert to jujitsu and everything. And I'm like, what's, what's rolling? Like, mm-hmm. Oh, you mean barring? Oh, okay. You know, people don't know that it's industry lingo. Like you said, contextualizing all that stuff is really important. Mm-hmm. And uh, before too long, you know, then people really start to feel at home and dig the vibe and feel like they've been welcomed. And uh, that's always the goal. Cause people will come in for, for the features, whatever the goals are that they have on a surface level of their head what will allow them to stay is their relationship to it and the community. So, you know, I think all those are important. can't just be about like, I'm going to show you the, you know, these sick moves today and think mm-hmm. people are going to stay. It's hard enough to get people to stay long-term doing an alive martial art to begin with, because it's hard. It's not, you know, break a board, do a kata, gold star, yeah. get a black belt. No, no right or wrong, no judgment, but I'm just saying live mm-hmm. martial art by its very definition, you will have to experience failure in terms of getting swept, submitted, punch kicked, no CTE, no hard head contact, Mm -hmm. but I'm saying like, you're going to have to be experiencing micro defeats thousands, tens of thousands of times along your journey as long as you do it, which hopefully is for life. So it's like, it's hard enough as it is without just taking all these things for granted.
0: That's amazing. You guys put that much customer experience into the, you know, in user experience, if you will, into the whole process from day one, you know, as you begin your journey.
1: We try to, yeah. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. um, I think we can always do better, but we definitely try and do that and make things um, comfortable as possible as a transition Mm -hmm. to a totally new pursuit. And the other thing, too, is like, you know, setting expectations with people, not just in terms of rules and regulations of your academy and all that stuff, but also trying to sort of set expectations early on about what they should be biting off because you realize that a lot of people start off where they're, uh, I use the expression like, you know, my eyes were bigger than my stomach. You know, when Mm you, order a huge plate of food, but then you feel like you're going to burst and you've actually stick <laughs> after getting through a quarter of it. A lot of people just want to sprint, especially if people come in and you get the kind of the quintessential, like young guy that's all juiced up and like, man, oh, I yeah. want, I want to be the next like MMA champion. And they just have like the visions of sugar plums in their head of like being in front of a crowd with their hand raised and everybody's mm-hmm. like, ah, oh, you know, and do they want to just start fighting day one, sparring and everything? And it's really hard because I'll get some, you know, sometimes my instructors are just like, oh, do you believe this guy? Like, you know, they want to basically tell him like, dude, you're not even close to that yet. And I'm like, listen, ease up because that's true. You know better. This guy doesn't know better yet. So if you tell him like that, what, what he thinks he wants right now is completely delusional. All you're doing is just diminishing his status and making him feel bad about himself, which is going to cause a reaction, which could yeah. be and everything. It's like, we have plenty of time. The better way to do that is constructively. It's to say like, look, This is the same process that everybody who's done what you want to do has gone through. And we used to do it more like what you're saying. But you know what? We actually, for these reasons, got diminishing returns. So this is the reason why we're going to build you up a little bit slower than you might like in the beginning. But it's Mm -hmm. come from actual real-world testing. Mm -hmm. And patient with that process, you will see down the road why we do it that way. And it's going to set you up for success a little bit better. So you do need to learn, you know, have the training wheels on. And as soon as you're ready, which, hey, man, if you show up with the consistency and the dedication that you're saying right now, as soon as you're ready, those training wheels will come off. Mm-hmm. We're not doing it for the sake of doing it, you know? And usually if you talk to people like that, most reasonable people understand that you have their best interests at heart and mm-hmm. they'll have buy-in to that. Once in a while, somebody comes in and they, they just truly are like their expectations are just not in line with reality. But for the most part, we always want to bring them along in a positive way, never let our ego try and undercut where they're at at their stage in development. You don't need to show somebody that you're no more than them. And, you know, you don't want to make them feel stupid. You want to try and empower them to understand where the process is leading. I just think it's much more positive that way.
0: Is that something indicative of SBG? It sounds like a very um, sort of agile type of mindset and that you guys are always expecting and adapting, which results in sort of a long game approach, which is an interesting strategy
1: and a successful one, it seems like. Yeah, and believe me, the organization has matured a lot because if you go back to the early days, I mean, <laughs> Matt will tell you, like if you talk about the early days of uh, being on MLK in and, and Portland, <laughs> Matt Matt tells you right off off the bat. He's like, yeah, back back in those early days, like back in like the mid-90s, I was a dick. And all I wanted to do was like, Basically, I only taught because I wanted to have training partners that I could fight with so mm. I could get better. And uh, <laughs> talking about a guy like, you know, six eight and everything. So it's like yeah. with skill. A lot of those early people, there's only a few of them left that are good friends of mine now and are, you know, senior coaches in SPG now. But like, there's only a few people left from those days because it was used to be like having this giant just kick the shit out of you <laughs> every day. And but over time, went from this more of like a club atmosphere where- It was very competitive from day one and all the classes were sparring as hard as you could, rolling as hard as you could. And um, over time, everybody just the same interest in pursuing the truth of what works in terms of functionality in martial arts also informed itself to what is best practices for teaching and coaching technology, not just in terms of building ultimately like building skill development because we already understood that. But mm. easing back to truly make that accessible to people that are coming in with different motivations. And this is one of the biggest pieces of advice that I could give to a lot of instructors because I see some people that are like, even if they're very good teachers, I see them making this mistake. I see them go on Facebook and make some, some post. And peripherally, what the, the gist of it is, is that like, hey, if you don't hold these values for how to train and stuff like that, then, mm. you know, you be here type of thing. And I'm like, what I know is that your relationship to what it is you're doing, what your, your goals are, will shift over time. That's almost always true. Even from people that are like the most diehard competitive at a certain point, as their life changes, as they take on, you know, go through different stages in life and everything, their perspective changes, even if they love jujitsu and are involved with it full time for decades their relationship to it will change just like it does in other areas of life. And you cannot assume that unless you're just running a fight team or something like that, right? Like unless I'm just like a like an MMA or jujitsu like competition trainer, if you want to have an academy, don't force your own agenda at a certain point in your development on your students. Because they might be there for very different reasons than you, and you have to honor that. So their reasons may change too. At some point, they may come more in alignment with yours, but you can not assume that it's the same. And this is where things sometimes go awry because they get kind of clicky and everybody thinks that their personal goals at this moment are the only like real valid or honorable thing They may not come right out and say it, but there's sort of this vibe that these other people here aren't like really that worthwhile because they're not here for what we're here for, my little group over in the corner. And Mm -hmm. um, it's totally cool if you maybe gravitate a little bit more towards um, people that do have shared goals, Mm -hmm. but nobody's are better than the others. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? I think that's important to maintain so that there's like a sense of community where everybody does respect why everybody else is there and um, supports one another, even if not everybody has the exact same goals.
0: You have so many different things going on. I'm curious how you balance these things. You know, you got your personal life, you have the you know, jujitsu, you have the online coaching business as well and uh, everything how are you managing all of these things what does that look like the management of all of this
1: it's a challenge um for sure and so you know what i'm constantly trying to do is optimize different areas and you know kind of get everything like focused but i love martial arts i will do it for my entire life until you have to drag me off of a training floor put a diaper on me you know like (laughs) in some way shape or form right it's my thing and so I truly enjoy that. I I love my students, my friends. I have a few really close friends that are lifelong from outside of martial arts, but most of the people that I'm closest with that I consider to be like family um, Mm -hmm. that aren't family are people that I've met through this. And that's very common, right? People like really develop strong bonds in these communities. So that's important to me. I love the academy. I love working with people online. And then I also do online consulting for like fitness professionals, like personal trainers and health coaches and things like that as well. Cause I actually was a personal trainer too, up to a certain point. Or I focus more on just the martial arts side. But uh, Mm -hmm. at at one point in my life, those are concurrent. Having gone through like running a gym and then, you know, doing PT and running a gym and group classes, martial arts and everything, I have kind of a pretty robust picture of that whole industry. So it's kind of made sense for me to branch out there as well. It's time consuming, but it's also I've managed somehow to navigate so that everything I do for a living is all the stuff that I really love to do if I didn't have to make money at all, right? So, mm. I like I've aligned I've aligned my profession with my passions as they say, which is amazing.
0: Great. Can you please tell us of all the places that we can get a hold of you and learn more about you and perhaps even enroll in some of your programs or purchase your items?
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. 40plusbjj.com with a 40 And then everything else is written out, 40plusbjj.com. That's my personal website storefront for my courses. The most recent ones over the past, like say five years or so are the the Pillars series. Those are very popular. I also have a bunch of courses, including one that I did exclusively with BJJ Fanatics called the BJJ Accelerator Blueprint, which is on the Fanatics site. And I have a striking course with them as well as I carry my other courses too. And then I have 40 Group on Facebook which is a pretty mm-hmm. large community now we've got you know it's a great group yeah between 17 18000 pretty good yeah. sense of humor there too you know like yeah,
0: uh, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's uh, so helpful though too I mean it, all kinds of great tips and everything it's a fantastic resource
1: it's been a good a good run on that and then I guess for the other is SBG East Coast is my academy here in Massachusetts. And so if anybody is coming by, traveling or something like that, and you'd love to stop in or something like that, um, we're a little still modified because of COVID, but just you can look us up, give us a call. We, we have people come in on their travels. And uh, as long as people are cool, we love to have you stop by and, and train with us. And then uh, for anybody that's fitness or health coaching world, like there's a fitness coach or a personal trainer that does online, I have a, a very cool group. And you can find out about that at uh, SatoriCoachOnline.com. On Instagram, my academy is SBG East Coast. And then for my fitness business, it's Stephen.Whittier, Stephen with a PH.Whittier on Instagram. And then I do have a YouTube channel I try and put stuff up there, but I don't have a massive channel, but I do have quite a few videos up there for 40 plus. So that's 40 plus BJJ as well on YouTube.
0: All right, everyone. I am Adolfo Ferranda. You can look us up forever white belt. Thanks for listening. Give us the thumbs up, the subscribe and the whole thing Hit the bell and nice reviews everywhere. Thank you so much for your time, Stephen. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks. This was great. I appreciate you as well.
0: Thanks for watching, listening, everyone. Take care.